Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. I want to take a minute to connect you to our newest sponsor, Zenkai Sports, who are here with a question for you. Why do we sweat? Our body is perfectly designed to cool us down, but most apparel companies use moisture-wicking fabrics that remove our sweat, which makes us overheat faster and actually hurts our performance. Zenkai uses cutting-edge technology that repels sweat and other liquids. Zenkai apparel lets the sweat stay on your skin, keeping you cool for longer and repelling odor-causing bacteria. This means Zenkai apparel can be worn 10, 15, 20 times with no washing required. This lowers your carbon footprint and saves money, so you can be a hero with your planet and your family. Join the revolution for better apparel technology. What's in your ZNA? We've partnered with Zenkai, so if you head over to www.zenkaisports.com and use the discount code LYM20, you'll get 20% off your entire order. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Ben Dubin. Ben has been a career strength and conditioning coach and is also a firefighter and paramedic serving in the Tempe, Arizona area. I recently encountered Ben at the Exos Continuous Improvement Summit that I was invited to speak at in Phoenix. Ben has been certified as an instructor of the Wim Hof Method and he brought his method of practice to the entire Exos performance team as a workshop and applied presentation over the course of the weekend. I had the opportunity to sit with Ben at dinner one of the nights, and he told me the story of how he encountered this method of practice and how it had changed his life. Because of his story, his mission has become sharing the Wim Hof method with those who want to learn, as well as first responders and veterans suffering from stress, anxiety, depression, and PTSD. I thought his story was one worth telling on Leave Your Mark, and I invited him to spend some time with me today. I'm honored to have him here. Welcome, Ben. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. Yeah, it's good to see you too. Um, yeah. You know, how, how, was, how did you feel about that uh, presentation and how you were received by everybody at Exos and stuff? It, it continues, I don't know why it does, but it continues to amaze me the impact that the power of the breath and the cold has on people. You know, every presentation I do is just uniquely beautiful because of the impact it has on so many people. And it's just such a, such a simple thought and a simple process of breathing and, and cold water that can help so many people out there. Just each presentation continues to just inspire me to do more and more and more. <laughs> That's awesome. It really does. Before we get into all of the whys and what fors, let's um, swing back to uh, you as a little guy. You grew up mm-hmm. where and dreamed of doing what when you were a little boy? 
So originally, I grew up in Phoenix slash Scottsdale, Arizona, and my main goal in life was to be a professional baseball player. That's what wow. I wanted to do. Wow. Yep. And what what attracted you to baseball? Was it your parental influence or TV influence? Where where did you get it from? I, I think it's a combination. I have two brothers, one older, one younger, and the older brother was in the baseball. And as a younger brother, I wanted to do everything he did. So wanted to follow in his footsteps. And, and out here in Arizona, when I was growing up, we didn't have a baseball team, but we did have WGN. So we had the Cubs games broadcast every day during the spring. So we grew up watching the Cubs and we grew <laughs> up just playing baseball. And I just, I fell in love with the sport and everything about it from the, the smell of the grass when it's freshly cut to the sound the cleats make on the concrete to hitting the bases to running on the dirt just every part of the game I just truly fell in love with. And I'm like, this is what I want to do. And so I dedicated a big part of my life to, to trying to achieve that, you know, that very challenging goal. Well, tell me about that. Um, you, so what, what was positive about that experience and what was difficult about that experience in the end? Because obviously you're not mm -hmm. a professional baseball player. Right. Yes. Today, I didn't so. quite make it. I didn't quite make it. <laughs> I, I made it as far as division two baseball, um, got to play some collegiate baseball, which was a tremendous experience. And of course there's, like I said, there's, there's good things and there's, there's challenges that come along with trying to, become something that elite and what baseball taught me life lessons right any sport mm -hmm. can teach anybody these amazing life lessons is that the harder you work the more dedicated you are the more passionate you are good things come from that you know i truly believe that we can achieve almost anything through just practice hard work and not giving up mm -hmm. and i'm not the biggest guy in the world you met me i'm not fast i'm not crazy strong but I was just determined to continue to play at the next level every opportunity I got. And I was able to earn my spot with a very legitimate high school baseball team in Arizona. I went to Horizon High School. We were ranked first nationally my senior year of high school. So very competitive baseball out here. And then I was able to earn. I walked on to a junior college because all my friends went to ASU. They stopped playing baseball. I'm like, I want to keep playing. It's part of who I am. I'm not giving up. And so I walked on to a junior college, ended up earning a scholarship there, ended up helping my team advance to a junior college world series, my sophomore year. And then I'm like, I want to keep playing. I'm not done. I still have more left in me. And mm. so I walked on again to a division two in a place called Las Vegas, New Mexico, a very, very small town. And, uh, I spent a year playing baseball there and I kind of, had to come to a crossroads. I'm like, okay, I'm playing division two baseball. I'm not playing every day. Where's my future going? And at a very early age, my parents instilled in me, you know, education is going to be the, the forefront of, of who you are. We education's important. I'm going to go to college. And it just, it came to a point in my life where it's time to refocus my energies. And the reason I refocused them on the particular subject matter that I did is because I trained as an athlete at athletes performance back in the year 2000 mm. and being exposed to that environment. This is something else baseball gave me. I was exposed to the strength and conditioning culture that Mark Verstegen brought to Tempe, Arizona. And then I fell in love with strength and strength and conditioning. Mm. So even though I love baseball, my, my focuses started to shift 
towards, okay, if I can't play professionally, which that's the point I'm at now, and I had to come to that realization, maybe I can help those that are able to play professionally. Maybe mm-hmm. I can be of service to them to help them achieve their goals and still be a little bit a part of it. Mm-hmm. And because of my experience training at Athletes Performance back in 2000 and 2001 and learning from the coaches there, I'm like, this is what I want to do. And then so my focus has shifted from, from baseball to education. And I, I was able to get my degree in exercise science and then moved into the, the coaching realm after I kind of figured out that baseball was done. When you look back at your baseball career and even that early influence at Athletes Performance, were there any particular coach experiences mm-hmm. like being coached that inspired you, like that you felt um, helped you see something that maybe you didn't see about yourself or about where you were going to go? hundred percent. And, and as, as a coach, I love being coached. I always love being taught. My mom has been in education for 30 plus years. She was a seventh grade English teacher. And I just, I have this passion for learning and she definitely instilled that in me as a young age. And there's, I've had several amazing coaches throughout my playing career. And then also my, my coaching time, uh, a couple that come to mind, uh, my coach at Glendale community college, his name is Dave Grant. Dave is actually in the Arizona Baseball Coaches Hall of Fame, and for good reason. Mm. It wasn't just about baseball. It was about bringing young, young men up at this time in their life where a lot of changes are happening. They're in college. They're moving out for the first time. And not only was baseball important, but every other aspect of being a man was important. Mm. And he expected us to show up every single day and just be professional. Show up every day. Do your job. Don't talk back, keep your mouth shut, show up and work hard. And that's what I like. I like just being a professional person. He taught me how to be a professional person, no matter if you're hurt, you're sick, things aren't going well at home, you're struggling here and there, you show up and you give it everything you have that day. Hmm. And then moving forward, there was a very specific coach at Athletes Performance back in the day. His name is Luke Richardson. Luke has since gone on to coach professionally with several different uh, football teams in the National Football League. But when I first went to train there as an athlete, when I was 18-year-old kid, he was my coach. And just the way that he found a way to motivate you to get that extra 5%, just the words he used, the looks he gave you, you know, the, the communication, whether verbal or nonverbal, I'm like, I want to be like that guy. That's who I want to be when I'm coaching. And no one will ever be Luke Richardson. I'll tell you that. He is a level above every other coach I've ever met. He just has this way to look into your soul pretty much and to say, you can give me more right now. I know you can. And so those are the two coaches that definitely influenced me, one on the baseball and life side, and then one on the coaching side of people I just continue to aspire to be like. That's awesome. So tell me, you, you, you get inspired to get into strength and conditioning and become a coach. So how does that roll out for you? And then sort of segue into how the, the becoming a firefighter yeah. sort of rolls along with that. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, in college, after having my experience as an athlete and being in that culture and that atmosphere that, that API was back in the day, I'm like, this is where I want to be. This is the coolest place in the world. The greatest athletes in the world are coming here and I can be a part of this. This sounds amazing. So part of my degree, I needed to do an internship, an unpaid internship. So the last part 
of getting my, my degree in kinesiology was I did an unpaid internship at Athletes Performance. I think it was like the summer of, of 2006. And once again, was mentored by some amazing coaches, Daryl Edo, Ken Croner, these amazing people that have this track record that goes back many, many years. And not only were they amazing coaches, they were amazing teachers to us interns that wanted to learn how to be a coach. You know, there's only so much you can learn in school. You can learn the, the brick and mortar of trying to learn sets and reps. But to truly be a good coach, you have to have someone to model after. Mm-hmm. And these individuals taught us so much about the art of coaching. So I did my internship there during the summer of 06. And, you know, I was local. So that helped too. And my internship ended on a Friday. And I got offered a job on Monday as a performance specialist. And uh, I was able to work there for about four years. And my senior year of college is kind of where I made the decision before I went into coaching that firefighting was what I wanted to do. I'm not one of those guys that grew up and was like, I want to be a firefighter. That's the coolest thing ever. You know, I don't have like this crazy inspirational story of why I chose to do that. When I think back about the reasons, you know, when I went into baseball and then went into coaching, I just enjoy being part of a team and enjoy the camaraderie and enjoy doing things for the right reason, trying to find a way to help somebody else, whether it's laying down a sacrifice butt to get your guy from first to second or helping an athlete achieve whatever goal it is. I always just had this innate feeling that I wanted to be a part of something where we could help each other become better. Mm. And so when I look back at the camaraderie and the, the helping and the team atmosphere, firefighting just kind of made sense. And then I went and did a ride along with the local crew out here in Phoenix and saw the way they operated, saw the way they trained, saw the way they spoke to each other, saw the way they treated patients. And I'm like, I can get paid to do that. That is the coolest job in the world. (laughs) And so that's where my mindset started to shift. So it's very competitive to become a firefighter. Um, Usually there's over a thousand people for every single test for maybe five or 10 spots. So it's a very challenging culture to get accepted into. And so when I went to athletes performance as a coach, they knew full well what my intentions were. My intentions were not to stay as a coach here and continue to grow as a coach. My intentions were to eventually become a firefighter. And I'll tell you what, they supported me 100% from day one. Mm. They knew what my passion was. They knew what my goal was. They appreciated having me there coaching for them and with them but they were 100% on board with the direction I wanted my life to go. And a lot of organizations, you can't really tell them, well, yeah, I'm going to work here, but I'm going to go find this other job too. A lot of organizations probably are not okay with that. Mm -hmm. That's how amazing Exos and Mark and all the people are, is that they truly want you to fulfill whatever dreams that you have, and they're going to support you every step of the way. And so during my four years coaching, I probably took 20 different tests for 20 different fire departments and kept getting rejected, rejected, rejected. No, 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 no. But, you know, growing up, you know, playing baseball and all that stuff, it teaches you that don't give up, don't give up hard work, practice, dedication, keep going after it. If you really want it, it's going to happen, but it's up to you. You have to pay the price. You have to do the work. You have to, if you want to get what you achieve. And so during my four years coaching, I actually put myself through paramedic school as well. Once again, Exos was like, hey, you do what you got to do. And so they let me have some time off each week to go to class. After class, I come back to coach. And for about 13 months, I did both coaching and went to be a paramedic. Uh, I got certified as a paramedic in 2010 after four years of coaching. 
And that was when I first left and first was introduced into the fire service where I got to work on an ambulance for the city of Tempe as a paramedic. Mm. And that kind of began my, the past 10 years now of what the fire service has looked like to me and was my transition from coaching to, to being a firefighter. Wow. Tell me about the mindset of being a firefighter and paramedic where the sensitivity is, um, you know, you, you want to do good work, do a good job, but there's this, these two overriding pieces, which is one, you're putting your life at risk. And the other one is you're saving people's lives. And what does it take to put your mind in that place where you sort of recognize you, you have your life with your family and the people you love, and then you're putting your life at risk and you're also saving lives. It's, it's a really interesting sort of a combination of, I'm sure threads of, 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 mindset moments uh, yeah. in your in your work and, and i'd say that's a challenge that we're always continuing to learn about and continuing to try and improve just as human beings because yes as human beings we're not necessarily designed to see and do some of the things that we signed up to do and when 8 a.m hits and i go home to my family it's a completely different ben i cannot give them i should not give them the same ben that I gave the citizens that I served for the past 24 hours. It's a transition. And I'll tell you what, I've struggled with that for many years. A lot of individuals I work with struggle with that. And I, I think that's one of the biggest reasons why and how the Wim Hof method has affected me is when I start to think about why are we able to do these things on duty, uh, put our lives at risk when that time calls and help people and potentially save people in these extremely life-threatening situations. And then how do we go home and put all that behind us? And when I started thinking about it, it's all about our nervous system. You know, where does it end? Where does it start? What is stress? How does stress affect us? Are we able to handle stress? Are we able to control stress? Are we able to let go of stress? Where do we carry that stress with us? You know, firefighting has one of the highest, any public safety is one of the highest divorce rates out there. And the number that was the most startling to me is firefighters commit more firefighters commit suicide every single year than actually die in the line of duty. Wow. And that's where my life's work has taken me because I, that number needs to stop. And I think it's because the expectation of what we're expected to be on duty versus when we go home, you know, to me, my job truly starts when I go home and I'm a husband and now I'm a father and now I'm a son and now I'm a brother it's that's where my work is. And mm -hmm. the hard part is that is that transition. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you what, it, it, I don't think it ever gets easier. I think we continue to learn how to handle it better. But compared to where I was, let's say just five years ago, I am a 100% different person in a better way, because of the breath work and because of the cold because of what it's taught me about what stress is. Okay, so I, you know, partly part of me asked, asked that question to table set where we were going to go with this. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I interacted with you over dinner and you told me your story uh, relatively briefly. But I think for the listener, let's go back. You got you got injured and that sort of set off a, a cascade of things that uh, I don't think the listener would love to hear. So yeah. uh, if you want to share. So if you can tell me how all this went down at Okay, a short break here to tell you about our sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is for treatment skills and protocols and training methods and exercises like an operating system on a smartphone is for applications. 
Fundamentally, reconditioning brings the worlds of therapy and performance preparation together in one systematic process that makes treatment and training systems more efficient and effective. Level 1 takes you through the fundamental assessment process and gives you a tactical approach to eliminate any issue that stands in the way of your client's progress towards quality movement and a healthy and high-performing state. Level 2 goes deep on context, analyzing and understanding variable movement patterns, gaining clarity on key movement attributes, and being exceptionally precise about your interventions and strategies. It then links to the overall preparation program and becomes deeply considered of the context of that program and the environments of preparation. Finally, our reconditioning specialist mentorship is a completely virtual experience you can engage in from the comfort of your home that allows you to benefit from our 50 years of professional practice in a high-quality community of practitioners. This eight-week program walks you through how to apply this powerful operating system in your environment and your circumstances, irons out all the question marks, and ensures you are ready to deliver the most effective reconditioning practice to your clients. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to see what our next courses are being held and when our next mentorship is starting. Join the reconditioning revolution. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's funny. I, I never thought I'd be a guy talking about my story. I never thought I'd have a journey. I, I didn't like, you know, we talked about my past and I played baseball. I worked at Exos Athletes Performance. I got a college degree. Very quintessential what most people do. I worked hard. I earned what I got. And I had a great life. I had nothing to worry about, nothing to complain about. My parents were still together. I didn't... <laughs> I didn't, I didn't suffer. I, I didn't. A lot of people have really challenging childhoods. You know, my wife is very open about her childhood. She had an extremely challenging childhood, which has shaped her to be the way she is. And she has an amazing story to tell. Mm. I never thought I'd be the guy sitting or standing in front of people talking about what happened to me because I didn't have anything. And of course, you don't have anything until something happens. And then you choose what direction you go. So we kind of got to take a little step back of, of, I first heard about the Wim Hof method when I was a firefighter up in Colorado Springs. Mm. And so I was working here in Tempe as a medic. I wasn't a firefighter yet, but that was my goal. It was during the downturn of the economy. um, So nobody was testing out here, but I had a a connection up in Colorado Springs and I decided to take a test and I decided to take a test with 1200 other people. And somehow through that process, they picked 30 of us and I was one of the lucky ones to get hired. So I moved from, Phoenix, Tempe, up to Colorado Springs. And I was a firefighter there for roughly three and a half years. I was randomly one day at a chiropractor who I'd seen several times. And he mentions, hey, Ben, you ever heard of this guy named Wim Hof? And I had never heard of him. This is probably back in 2014, 2015. Never heard of him. And he knows I'm a firefighter. And he knows I'm always trying to push the limits physically. I want to always talk about how I want my air bottle to last longer, how these zero degree temperatures are very challenging for a desert boy, desert boy. You know, I wasn't used to shoveling snow. I wasn't used to fighting fire when it's zero degrees outside. And he's like, Hey, I think this guy, Wim, I think his technique can help you with some of those physical things that you talk about. And so like a lot of people, when I first heard about him, there's a documentary that vice put out several years ago about who Wim Hof is. And, and that was my first exposure to who he was and what he was trying to do. And I watched this. I'm like, you know what? This is pretty cool. This is a guy who can push the limits physically. And I'm like, I want to be able to push my limits physically. I want to be a better firefighter. So when I first looked at the Wim Hof method, I was looking at it purely from a physical fitness 
a performance standpoint. And that's all I cared about because I had nothing else. I thought nothing else to really worry about. Everything else was going good in my life. And so I bought Wim's online course when I was up in Colorado and I did it, but I was a little bit inconsistent with it. I do it a few days a week and I felt amazing while I was doing it, but didn't have like long lasting life changing effects, but I felt good. So I'm like, okay, another test came up to be back here in Arizona and Tempe fire department where I currently work for. It took me 10 years from my first test I ever took for them to actually getting hired. This was my dream department. This is where I wanted to be. This is where my family is. This is this is the pinnacle of what I want to do in the fire service. These are the people I want to work with. This is the place I want to be. So finally, another test comes around and I get convinced and talk with my wife. My, hey, this would mean uprooting our entire family. We have a one-year-old son at the time and moving back to Phoenix. Are you sure this is what you want to do? And she was 100% on board. And so I took the test once again, like a thousand other people, they hired three of us. And fortunately enough, I was one of the lucky ones to get through. So we moved our entire family back down here to the Phoenix area. I went through a whole nother fire Academy. I went back onto a fire truck and this whole time I'm so busy. Life gets in a way that I'm not really practicing the breath work. I'm not really practicing the cold. I'm just kind of doing what I used to do. Three months in to my first time on the fire truck in Tempe, I get hurt. So we're at our training center. Uh, so it was on duty injury. And at some point during this training evolution, I feel some pain in my left arm. I didn't think much of it. I thought I just pulled a muscle. I'm like, all right, I can get through this. So we finish our training session. And in, in Tempe, we do 24 hour shifts. And this happened around 10, 11 in the morning. I'm like, oh, I'm okay. I can, I can ice it. I'll get through the rest of the day. And so I do that. We continue to work. We run a bunch of calls. I wake up uh, in my room at the, at the station at like 6 a.m. the next morning. And I move my arm around. I'm like, you know what? That bicep's just not moving like it's supposed to. I think there might be something wrong. And so I go see a doctor. And that was the last time I worked for 16 months. So I see a doctor. And they're like, yeah, your, bi your distal bicep is most likely torn. You need to go see an orthopedic. So for firefighters, what happens when you're injured is you get placed on something called light duty. Now, most of us that are firefighters did it because we don't want to sit behind a desk. We're not office people. We like going out and we like doing it, being physically active, all those things that you think of when you think of firefighting. But when you're on light duty, you're put behind a desk doing nothing but this in a keyboard. Mm. And it's not really the lifestyle we signed up for this. So there's a lot of challenges associated with that. So I see the orthopedic surgeon. She's like, yep, we have to have surgery. We schedule the surgery. And we're thinking about a three to four month rehab, which I can wrap my head around. I'm like, okay, three to four months, I can do this. We have the surgery. And immediately after the surgery, the next day, I have this burning sensation from my, just below my left elbow, all the way down to my hand. And it's this constant, irritating, burning, almost like this really weird nerve pain. And I've really never been injured before. This is my first significant injury in my life. And so I go back to see the doctor a few weeks later and I'm like, Hey, I have all this really weird nerve stuff. It's burning. It's really uncomfortable. The meds aren't working. Nothing's really working. And she's like, no, what? That's, that's normal. We have to, when we go in and, and fix the bicep tendon, we have to move around a bunch of nerves and they're going to irritate the nerves. And that's just something that over time is going to fix itself. So I'm like, okay, you know, you're a doctor. I trust everything you say. So 100%, I'll just keep pushing through rehab. And I was fortunate enough to do my rehab at Exos because um, I believe in them and I trust them and I truly believe they are the best at what they do. 
And so we're, we're, we're plugging along and all these nerve problems kind of continue. And I'd say three months in, I go back to the doctor. I'm like, hey, if I try and lift more than five pounds like a bicep curl, it feels like my arm is going to tear in half. And she looks at me and she feels around. She feels the tendon. And she's like, nah, the tendon's super strong. Like, it's good. It's as strong as it's going to get. You're good to go back to work. Well, a firefighter who cannot lift more than five pounds is kind of an issue. So I asked her, hey, can I do any more? If I push it, am I going to do any more damage? She's like, no, you just have to find a way to, to get past this pain barrier, this pain threshold that somehow you created in your head. You got to find a way to push past it. And I'm like, that's all I need to hear. If I, as long as I'm not going to hurt it worse, I can push it. Great. I'll do that. So I go back to Exos, tell the PTs over there. Hey, she said we got to push it. She cleared me to go back to work. So I got to find a way to start upping that weight to what I need to be doing as a firefighter. And so we start pushing it, you know, 10 pounds, 15 pounds, 20 pounds, 25 pounds. And every single time I try and do a bicep curl, it feels like my arm is going to split in two. And it's hard to explain, but it literally feels like someone is taking it and trying to snap it like a twig. I have a, at this point, a two, three-year-old son at home. I can't even pick him up. I can't play with him. I can't pick him up. I have, I'm not being a good dad to him. When we moved from Colorado to Phoenix, I took a $40,000 pay cut to kind of start back over. And a month before I got injured, my wife ended up quitting her job in IT because she wanted to focus on her own thing. So there's quite a few things that are starting to compound on me mentally, physically, emotionally that I didn't really realize at the time. And so I go back to the doctor. I'm like, hey, I still can't lift more than five pounds. Like, I can't do this. And you know, throughout this conversation, she keeps telling me, hey, you're good, you're good, you just got to get past it. So for the first time in several years, I got to think, can I even be a firefighter again? Like, am I done? Did I leave a very secure, stable job in Colorado Springs with a great the fire department, great people up there to come here? And did I just lose it all? Is it over? And so I ended up honestly Google searching voluntary amputations of the arm, trying to find other one-armed firefighters throughout the country that I can call and contact to say, hey, how do you do it? What was your process? What do you, what prosthetic? I was trying to find an answer because I was not ready to give up on being a firefighter. It's, it's what I always, it's what I wanted to do. It's what mm -hmm. I love doing with my life. And so I go back to the doctor and I'm like, Hey, I'm still having all these problems. And so she's like, okay, we'll do this nerve conduction study. She's like, I've never had to do this with any patient of mine, but we'll try it because I don't know what's going on with you. So we do this nerve conduction study and I go back to get the results and it comes back as severe nerve damage comes back as one nerve pretty much completely severed and then two other nerves severely damaged, which only could have happened during the surgery because I had no damage prior to the surgery. So she looks at this with this damage. She's like, no, Ben, I consulted with my colleagues. They don't really understand what's going on here. There is nothing more I can do for you. You have to go find somebody else. And that was my last conversation with her. And this is six months in to a three or four month rehab process, six months of sitting behind a desk, Six months of not being able to play with my son, six months of nothing but pain, six months of financial hardship, marriage hardship, just everything is just, um, I'm struggling. And this is the point that I kind of reached my, my darkest moment in my life where I look in the mirror and I didn't recognize myself. You know, I'm a guy who identified by my athletic ability, by my physical ability, and I felt like I was done. I didn't, I didn't know what else to do. I contemplated just quitting the fire service. Like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I'm leaving. I'll go find something else to do. Um, I contemplated some other dark stuff that, that 
was really just a really challenging time for myself, my wife, and my son. So I go to get a second opinion. Obviously, I think everyone knows we're at this point. And the doc's like, hey, let's get an MRI. So we get an MRI. And he's like, then we have to start completely over. The tendon is not even attached. It's just scar tissue attaching your bicep to your bone. There is zero tendon there. And so I'm like, okay, at least I know there's something wrong. I can take some validation and appreciation in knowing it's not completely in my head. I feel like I'm a pretty tough guy, but I couldn't get through this pain barrier. There's a reason why. There was no actual tendon attached to the muscle and bone. So at this point, I talked to my wife and I do more research on the Wim Hof method. I'm like, I didn't realize that there were all these great mental health benefits to breathing in cold water. Like I said, I first got into it for the physical performance aspect, but then I research it more and everyone's talking about how with anxiety, depression, whether they were suicidal, whether they were addicted to something that they found a way out with the breath work in the cold. And at this point, I have nothing to lose. I'm like, I will try anything to feel good again. because I've forgotten what it's like to be happy. I've forgotten what it's like to be strong. And I've forgotten what it's like to be healthy. And for a 35-year-old firefighter, that's just unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And so I make a decision. I'm like, okay, I'm going to have the second surgery. I know something's wrong. We're going to fix it. Great. I'm going to dedicate at least 21 days. I heard, read a book somewhere, 21 days to create a habit, right? I'm going to dedicate 21 days somehow to breathing and getting in cold water. I don't care what it looks like, but I'm going to do it. So we go and have a surgery. And not only was the tendon not attached, there was an interference screw that was screwed into the radius that was just bouncing around. It wasn't even secured. It was just floating there. So the doctor surgeon goes in, takes it out, does his thing, reattaches the tendon. I'm in a sling for, you know, a few months because we did a repair of a repair. So he's like, it's going to be at least six months, if not longer, for you to think about getting back on a fire truck. So that now takes my timeline from three to four months up to at least a year. So I'm breathing every day. I'm getting in cold water every day. I'm feeling good. About two months in, I'm walking around our training center and there's firefighters filtering in all day, every day. And for the previous eight months, I get asked the question, how are you doing? Probably 50 times a day. And I know people are coming from the right place. They care. They want to see me get better. But it really sucks saying the same thing over and over again when it's not good news. When you have to keep telling your story of, no, my arm sucks. I don't know what my future is. I don't know if I can keep doing this job. I don't know what I'm going to do. Like everything. Like you, you, you don't like saying it. You know people are coming from the right place. But it just it was very irritating. Mm. Then one day, it was two months in, a captain walks up to me. I'm walking around in the sling. And he's like, Ben, how you doing? And my answer was, I've never felt better in my entire life. And he looked at me funny. <laughs> and I kind of stopped. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> what did I just say? <laughs> like, my arm's in a sling. My future's uncertain. Nothing's changed there physically, really. But up here between my ears, I literally was at a point where I've never felt better in my entire life. And that was my aha. Like, holy crap. All I've done is breathe every day, get in cold water. And somehow I found a way to be happy in the situation that I thought was impossible to be happy. And I'm like, wow, if I can find a sense of happiness here with everything I have going on, who else can find it? And then this was kind of starting my path to learning to become an instructor because of the mental health problems with fire departments and police departments and military veterans with the suicide rate being as high as it is that, man, maybe I can help these people. Maybe there's something I can do because of what I've been through and what I've learned through the Wim Hof method 
that I was able to find happiness. Maybe I can show them that they can find happiness too. And so this continued on. I kept breathing. I kept getting in cold water. I kept feeling better and better and better. The arm was still physically lagging like any arm would after two repairs. I had to have a third surgery. I had scar tissue that got wrapped around the radial nerve and it kind of squeezed it down like you pinch a hot dog. And it just caused a ton of nerve problems. But any byproduct of surgery is going to be scar tissue. But we had to make a decision to go in there because it was extremely painful to try and scrape as much tissue off that nerve as possible to give me the best chance of coming back to a fire truck. So I have the third surgery. I keep breathing, keep getting cold water, and life just keeps getting better. Everything. My marriage improves. My time with my son improves. My arm, I have nerve damage, but I can get past that. I begin to redefine my relationship with pain. I begin to redefine my relationship with discomfort, with the ice water, with the breathing, and be like, you know what? I can handle this. I begin to take back the control that I felt I had lost over the previous year. And once I realized that I was in control of how I felt versus my arm being in control of me or my outside situation being in control of me, my life completely changed. And it's truly from learning the breath work, learning to handle yourself in ice water, that gave me, that showed me that I control my environment everywhere I go. My environment does not control me. And so with the support of my wife, I went down the instructor path to become Wim Hof Method Instructor, which was uh, a two-day course in LA with Wim and his associates, and then a five-day course at Mount Hood, Oregon, culminating with a hike up Mount Hood at five in the morning and nothing but a pair of shorts in 40-degree weather. And it was the, one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And because of that injury, because of the challenges, because of the surgery that did not go well, I am here today. So I am beyond grateful and thankful the way everything turned out. I would not be who I was today without those challenges. So now I've got a story that I never thought I'd have. Awesome. <laughs> so I want to decipher some of this a little bit. Okay. I'm, I'm, I've always been interested in this whole thing about walking up the mountain in the shorts. <laughs> so Tell me about the morning you do that and mm-hmm. you're, you're, you've gone through all this work, but there's got to be something psychologically that's still saying to you, this is nuts. Oh, yeah. And then you do it. And yeah. what, do you, what do you actually feel? Like what, what is different than, than walking up with your parka on? Like what, mm-hmm. what's going through your brain? You know, it's, that's a great question. <laughs> Because you are, you're sitting there at the base, of the, you wake up at four in the morning, you've done all this work, where there's 50 of us in this group, all the way from the age of like 25 up to 75. So a huge, huge range of individuals, all varying fitness levels. And I'm not just looking at myself, I'm looking at all these other people like, dang, this, this seems a little dangerous. Like, I, there's no real medical help here. I'm probably the highest medical authority being a medic. But there's like, if something happens, like we're going to be in trouble. And so you get to the mountain. It's pitch black outside because it's so early in the morning and it's cold and there's anxiety, there's anticipation, there's fear, there's all those emotions you can think of. But I'll tell you what, those emotions are the same exact emotions you have before an ice bath. Literally, there's anxiety, there's fear, there's anticipation. And the fact that we had trained that over and over and over and over again and learned to gain control in that atmosphere, for most of us for at least a year, we're like, you know what? We can handle that. We can handle anything. 
If we can find peace and calm and joy in a clean, clear, easy breath in that environment, this is nothing. We just got to walk up a mountain. No big deal. And so I truly believe the preparation, not just from that week, but from the previous year and from all of our life experience, that it just redefined our relationship with discomfort. It redefined our relationship with pain because cold is cold. Cold is always going to be uncomfortable. It's always going to have a pain element, but it's a teacher. And when we approach this hike as what are we going to learn today? What is this mountain going to teach us? What is this environment going to teach us? It makes it much easier to get through those barriers your brain tries to put on you because you're truly just a student trying to learn. You're not trying to power through it. You're not trying to grit your teeth. You're trying to sit back, observe, and learn. What is this experience teaching me? And I think that mentality helped all of us. Like I said, there are some 70 plus year olds that got all the way up the mountain without any issue whatsoever. And that was the most inspiring part to me, not the fact that I was able to do it, but the fact that these other people who you'd look at, they're probably, oh, they probably can't do it. They did it. Mm-hmm. They, they, they did it because they had prepared themselves mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually to be like, you know what? No matter what happens, I got it. I'm in control. This environment's not in control of me. And that's what the method teaches you. So you still feel the discomfort and the oh, sensations, always. but you always. have, you can, you manage it within your mindset around what it, what it means. The cold, an ice bath, you know, I do 30 something degree ice baths almost every day and it is cold every single time and it sucks every single time. But we tend to avoid things in life that are uncomfortable, right? We tend to avoid right. things in life that we don't want to do. But if you're constantly putting yourself in a situation that you don't want to do and finding comfort and ease and success with that, that's going to translate to every other aspect of your life. Mm-hmm. It's always going to hurt, but it's okay because discomfort's a good thing. Discomfort teaches us how to overcome. Mm. Do you feel uh, differently when you're fighting a fire now than you did before? Oh, yeah. And it's not just fighting a fire. So, like, you know, out here, 80% of our calls are medical in nature, you know, all the way from a sprained ankle to a cardiac arrest. And then obviously we have structure fires. You know, the, the analogy I use is that let's put two firefighters in the back of a fire truck, go into a fire. One firefighter is just out of the fire academy. One firefighter's been doing this for 20 years. You're both going to the same fire. You're both hearing the same stuff on the radio. You're both getting the same reports. You both ideally have a fairly similar level of training. You know how to pull a hose. You know how to put water on a fire. You know how to search. Who's going to have more situation? Who's going to handle that stress better? Who's going to have more situational awareness? It's going to be the veteran, right? Oh, he's a veteran. He's able to slow things down. He's able to see the big picture. The younger new guy probably isn't going to be able to because he has all these other things going through his head. His stress response is going crazy, going crazy. But to me, with the Wim Hof method or the ice bath work, you learn how to handle, process, and let go of any stress. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of able to to bypass needing to get 20 years of experience because the biggest limiting factor I believe is the stress you put on yourself in that situation. But if we can control that stress, all of a sudden our blinders kind of come off and we're more relaxed. We're not go, 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 go and look at the big picture. And it just makes the job flow that much easier. Mm. So when I go to a fire, even though I've been a firefighter for about five, six years, which isn't a long time. I haven't fought a whole lot of structure fires. I'm able to slow things down because I've trained to know what stress is. I've trained myself to handle it in any situation so that that's not even a factor anymore. I can put that to the side and I can just focus on the job I have to do. 
Here again with another word from our sponsors, Zenkai Sports, who want to let you in on a little secret. Performance apparel hasn't changed much in the last 20 years. Most apparel is still based on moisture-wicking synthetics, which not only make you more overheat faster, but are toxic for your body and the environment. Synthetics don't biodegrade, so that stinky workout shirt you have to throw out after six months, it lasts for thousands of years in landfills. Zenkai is the only cotton-based training apparel on the market, keeping your body safe from those scary petroleum-based synthetics found in most workout gear and giving you that extra edge when it counts. Be a part of the solution and join the revolution for better apparel technology at www.zenkaisports.com. What's in your ZNA? For 20% off your entire order, please use the discount code LYM20. That's interesting. I'm going to ask you a question that I, I was listening to a gentleman named Laurie Screslin a number of years ago, who was, was one of Canada's uh, great mountain climbers. He's summited Everest several times, numerous other big mountains in the world. And he was talking, he was telling this story about uh, crossing a crevasse on this ice ladder and, and essentially sort of falling and having to use his ice pick to pull himself up. And <laughs> I don't even do the story justice, but in essence, you're listening to this story going that that's nuts. What, what were you doing? You know? And I, I just said to him at one point, I said, what, what determines the difference between risk and foolhardiness? Mm-hmm. And when I listened to that, that, that classic Wim Hof story about climbing a Mount Hood or, or Mount Everest or whatever in your shorts, the, you know, there's this kind of our natural brain goes, that's foolhardiness. Mm-hmm. So how, how, how do you see now that you've kind of gone through this process and you're a paramedic, so you know about hypothermia and the dangers of cold and the dangers of heat and all this sort of stuff. So on the one side, you have this educated mind that knows that this can be dangerous. It can mm-hmm. cause damage to us. We can get frostbite and all these other things. Mm-hmm. How, did, how does one, the, the intellectual brain, deal with the, the, that other side? And, and how do we define foolhardy mm-hmm. versus being risk just a simple risk that we need to overcome that's that's a great question so like i guess what i would say is go back to the fire service i'm not going to put someone who has never been through a fire academy never trained into the gear and go fight a fire i'm going to train them i'm going to train them appropriately i'm going to train them using protocols i'm going to train them safely i'm going to train them the way we know to to keep them safe Mm. and to me the wim hof method is the same way we're very safe with our methods it's a gradual exposure to the cold over a long period of time Mm-hmm. If someone goes out right now in those 30-degree 30, 30 ice baths every single day, that's not going to be good. They're going to get sick. They might get hurt. They're not going to get out of the method what they're supposed to. But mm-hmm. if we train them accordingly based off what we know with the science behind the method and what we know as human beings as a gradual adaptation to the stress, we're going to do it safely. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's the difference between foolhardiness, you know, being a fool and then being smart and and being intellectual about it is doing it safely and doing it the right way. Cause the method really, really talks about a slow gradual exposure to the cold to help build up your resilience to that stress. And now the big reason we use the cold is the cold is a very safe teacher because our body, our physiology has many mechanisms in place to buffer our response to cold. So as humans, if we get cold, what happens? We shiver okay, that's my first inclination that I'm cold and I probably need to do something about it. If we get past that point, well, there's frostbite. 
your body, your physiology, you'd much rather lose a finger or a toe than a liver or a spleen. You look at the other side of things with heat, because I get the question I ask all the time, living in Phoenix, right? It's 120 degrees and I'm a firefighter. Like, how do we handle the heat? Well, if we train using the heat, it's just a lot more unsafe because once you've reached that point of heat exhaustion, heat stroke, our stress and our cardiovascular system, there's not as many buffers in place and it's extremely dangerous. What we do though, is we use the cold just to teach us what stress is. It doesn't matter hot, cold, argument with your significant other, you know, kid getting in trouble, stuck in traffic, it's stress. Mm-hmm. Stress is stress. And the cold is just teaching us through gradual exposure, how we handle and process stress. So, for instance, the first part of the method is you're in a hot shower as long as you want. You turn it all the way cold for 30 seconds and then sit back and observe. What is your reaction? Do you freak out? Does your mind go a million miles a minute? Do you want to jump out of the shower or do you start cursing or whatever it is? It's just a teacher. And it just teaches you how to handle, process, and let go of any stress you face. However, we need to do it very slow, very controlled, and very gradual. Mm. How's it changed um, you as a father? I am so much more engaged with my son. And I say, so the, one of the biggest challenge I believe in the fire service for those of us that do 24 hour shifts is getting off work at 8 a.m., potentially having a really busy shift, being up all night, fighting a fire, or I work in a very busy downtown bar area where a lot of problems with alcohol happen between two and six in the morning. Um, so we tend to be up a lot at work. And so my biggest challenge was going home after being up for pretty much 24 hours and then being there for my son. Mm. You know, we're only human. We're going to get tired, but I would come home irritable. I would come home angry. I wouldn't want to, he want to go to the park. I'm like, dude, I'm so, I'm tired. I have to go to sleep. Like I can't, I cannot be a part of this, but I've been gone for 24 hours. Like, well, dad's finally home. Mm. That's supposed to be our time together. And, you know, I, that, that tears me apart just to think about it and it tears me apart that that's the kind of dad I used to be, but I didn't know any other way. And I know it's a big problem for a lot of firefighters out there is once you get home, like I said, now your job starts because you've been gone, you know, mom, wife, they've been, or husband, whoever's been taking care of the kids by themselves for 24 hours, they need a break because they've had it all to themselves. Now you're home, but you were at work. So it's, it's you see, that's a very challenging situation. Mm-hmm. So what I do, what I make sure of, if I have a really challenging shift, the first thing I do when I wake up at work or when I get home is I do my three to four rounds of breath work. I get ice cold for two to three minutes and it helps reset my nervous system. You know, as a firefighter, you're kind of always teetering on fight or flight for 24 hours, mm-hmm. whether you're getting a call or not. And if you get woken up five or six times after midnight, your body's spiking up every single time. So your nervous system is literally completely out of whack by the time you go home in the morning. And that's only going to set you up for failure. So if we could find a way to almost hit the reset button to reset yourself to factory settings, I like to say, so we can go home. Yeah, you're going to be tired, but I am way less irritable. I am way less angry. I am way more engaged after I got my breathing and my cold work in because it's, it's, a, it's a fresh start. It's a fresh start to my day. And that to me was worth everything I've done the past several years, because of course I want to be there for myself and I want to go play with him. And this has given me the opportunity to be there for him, even after those tough shifts. Very cool. I'm going to segue to a part I do in my podcast where I take this book that I 
found out about many years ago called The Day You Were Born was written by a woman named Linda Joyce from New York, who's an astrologist. Mm -hmm. And she combined astrology with numerology. So everybody has their sort of purpose statement out of the book. And I found my purpose in it. So you're an Aries 7, born April 7th. Um, your purpose is to integrate your highest spiritual ideals in your daily life through love and to live them regardless of how the world accepts or rejects your efforts. When she was good, she was very good, very good. And when she was bad, she was horrid. Like the nursery rhyme, the Aries 7 is carried to their highest expression or dropped to depression. Capable of great success or failure, extremes are a part of their life. Howard Cosell, the sports announcer, was one of the few people to support Muhammad Ali's refusal to be inducted into the U.S. Army on grounds of con conscientious objection. What the government did to this man was inhuman. Nobody says a damn word about the professional football players who dodged the draft, but Muhammad Ali was different. He was black and he was boastful. Thousands of letters poured into ABC urging Cosell's dismissal. Cosell's courage and energy made him stick to his beliefs. Besides, he loved a good fight. The Aries 7 is prone to deception, betrayal, or abuse if their idealistic nature has them off the ground. They tend to, to sugarcoat the things they don't want to hear, so the truth they value so much is often missed. They need to pay attention to life's menial details. It will keep them anchored in reality, pay the bills on time, argue with the PTA, get the groceries bought. Such tasks might not excite or inspire, but rewards do come. <laughs> Can you read that first part for me again? The, the purpose part at the beginning? Yes, the first yeah. part. I'll tell you to, when to stop. To integrate your highest spiritual ideals in your daily life through love and to live them regardless of how the world accepts or rejects your efforts. Right there. So that, I can't even tell you how much that hits home. That is amazing. So in the fire service, we know firefighters are these tough, big guys that don't tend to show emotion. We don't say, I love you to each other. Um, and what I'm trying to, in five years ago, I would never put myself out there and be like, hey guys, it truly is about connection. It's about connecting to your breath. It's about connecting to each other. It's about helping each other. That's why we exist. And and I've learned throughout the breath work and the cold, and my wife has taught me a lot that it's okay to put yourself out there. And I'm trying to bring this sense of love and connection into the fire service because, like I said, you know, more firefighters are killing themselves every single year than are dying in the line of duty, and it has to stop. And I truly believe, and Wim says, the answer is love. And I'm going to try and spread that no matter what people think. I'm going to try and connect people to the breath connect people to the cold to show them that truly they can be happy, strong, and healthy, no matter what they think. And when I first brought this into the fire service, people will pull me aside. Hey, Ben, what do you think people are going to think of this? Like, I don't care. I know it's important. I know it can help and it has to be done. So that is an amazing statement. I love that. That's awesome. Well, I'll take a photo of it and send it to you so you can Please do. post yeah. it up for yourself. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I want to sort of finish, come back to, you know, if you were to bump into yourself kind of when you were at your lowest point with this whole thing mm -hmm. now, what would you say to yourself at that moment? You're, you're going through what you need to go through. This is all on purpose. This is, this is supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. And you know, you just, you're going to get through it. Uh, just keep an open mind. Just this, this has to happen to you right now at this point in your life to be able to help the people that you want to help down the road. This isn't about you. It's about them. And we're going to do it. Awesome, Ben. 
Well, that's a wonderful way to finish. Um, where can people find you if they want to have you come and instruct them or speak about uh, the Wim Hof method or just uh, hear your story? So the my website company is called Connect to It. Um, the word connect, the number two, then dash it.com. All my information is on there. Um, we're on, uh, on Instagram and Facebook at connect to it. And uh, yeah, they can contact me any way they want. Cool. Well, it was wonderful to meet you down in Phoenix and your story is amazing. And I'm really, uh, your mission is even more amazing. So thank good you, luck Scott. with that, Ben. It. Continue to do what you're doing. So thank you're living you, your, thank your you purpose. For, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Take care. All right, bud. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.